You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Okay, welcome. Spend a few minutes talking about the Lord's Prayer. Uh, don't mind the date on the top right. Uh, that was from last week. I was supposed to give the class, but I was ill. Um, I printed the whole thing and then realized that the date was back, but they didn't want to reprint everything. Save some paper. That's okay. Um, yeah. Okay, let's start with prayers, shall we? Thank you, Lord, for this time that we get gathered around your word. We pray for your blessing uh, as we reflect on the Lord's Prayer. Encourage us uh, that this prayer may be uh, of greater significance than, than it already even, even is for us. I pray that your Holy Spirit will be with us today. In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, uh, I wanted to do a couple of lessons on the Lord's Prayer uh, because... Well, it's the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> and uh, uh, I have a long-standing fascination and interest in this prayer. Um, I like the Lord's Prayer for many reasons. But one of the reasons is that uh, being liturgy, um, it's there to assist you in your prayers. Um, when I say that it is liturgy, I mean that it has it's a prayer to God. It has... Uh, style, balance, rhythm. Um, and like all liturgy, it's meant to help you come near God. Uh, that's what I find helpful about, for example, the liturgy in the Book of Common Prayer. It gives me a voice when I don't have a voice. Okay, Sometimes you don't feel like praying, um, so you open up the liturgy and you just start praying. Sometimes... Uh, you have too much pain and you just don't know how to start praying and the liturgy gives you a voice when you don't have a voice or you are too happy and you just don't know what to say and the liturgy gives you a voice there too or God just seems hidden from sight and the liturgy gives you a voice to God the beautiful thing about the Lord's Prayer being a liturgy it, it is, is that it is a divine liturgy uh, it's God himself the Son Jesus Christ telling you how he wants us to pray to the Father. So God himself gives you a voice of how you should approach him. Uh, so I find that neat. God himself giving you a voice of how to approach him. Uh, so I find the Lord's Prayer working similarly in my life as liturgy does. Sometimes uh, I'm too busy or uh, there are too many things going on in the morning or... Uh, your schedule is huge and you forget how to pray or you f forget to pray. Uh, maybe you don't feel like praying. Uh, you just want to get done, done, done. And then, so you don't have words, but you pause and you pray the Lord's Prayer. And what I find is that when I'm done praying the Lord's Prayer, I want to keep praying more, actually. So it, it, it gives you that voice um, to pray and it encourages you to pray. Um, but one of the dangers, if you like, of 
liturgy, such as we have in uh, in the Lord's Prayer, is that uh, it can be it can become rote. Uh, you can say it so often that uh, you're not thinking about what you're saying, right? Um, and uh, when that happens, uh, it's not nearly as meaningful uh, as when your heart and your mind is into the liturgy. This can certainly happen with the Lord's Prayer, given that we pray so often. Ironically, the answer to getting over that danger is not going away from the Lord's Prayer, but actually going deeper into the Lord's Prayer. You would think, oh, okay, so the Lord's Prayer is becoming wrote to me, so what I'll do is I just won't pray it for a while. I'll, I'll pray extemporaneously, or I'll do a different prayer. Uh, I think you'll find that, that that won't solve the problem. Like I said, the irony is that to for it not to become rote, going deeper into it is actually the answer, rather than going away from it. Uh, and that's what I want to do in these two lessons, go a little bit deeper into the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I think in our culture, the Lord's Prayer has lost some of its sacredness. Uh, you can hear the Lord's Prayer at uh, events that are not related to the church. I do not say that that's a bad thing. But in that way, it loses some of its sacredness. So you can hear the Lord's Prayer at a political event, for example, at a sporting event, uh, at a recovery group. Uh, any of those places you can find the Lord's Prayer being said. But the Lord's Prayer actually is, uh, is, has always been held by the church as a sacred prayer. And so I wanted to begin the first part of the, of the class by looking at uh, the Lord's Prayer in the ancient church and how sacred it was. We may find it very easy for us just to hop in the car and, and pray the Lord's Prayer. Uh, but that would be very different from the way that the early church thought about the the, uh, the Lord's Prayer. So let me just give you a couple of examples here. Uh, one document from the second century, obviously A.D., right? Uh, and it's uh, this is a, a, a the didache or the teaching. This is uh, a document produced by early Jewish Christians. Uh, most of the early church was Gentile, following Paul, right? Uh, but there was a group of Jewish Christians, and they produced this book called the Didache. Uh, and that is the earliest place outside the Bible where you find the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and, and look at uh, what he's doing there, uh, the quotation. But let not your fast be with the hypocrites, for they fast on the second and fifth day of the week, but fast on the fourth day and the preparation. Neither pray as the hypocrites, but as the Lord commanded in his gospel, thus pray. And then there is a quotation of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, and so on and so on. And then notice at the end of the prayer, after the prayer is done, the author says, thrice in the day thus pray. Um, which, is that in the Lord's Prayer in the Gospels? No, it's, it's an addition uh, from the teacher at the Didache, thrice in the day does pray. And what it's meant to do in a Jewish context is meant to replace the Jewish tefillah, that is called the Jewish prayer. Uh, if you were an orth uh, observant Jew during that time, 
you would normally pray three times a day. Uh, when you rise, uh, sometime around three o'clock, uh, when the sacrifice was being, uh, when the sacrifices were being slaughtered at the temple, and then at night, uh, you would say the three prayers. And it appears that the Lord's prayer is taking over those Jewish prayers. So that would be huge. If you were a, a Jewish person who had grown up at home and in the synagogue, you know, waking up in the morning, blessed are thou, Lord God, King of the universe, shield of Abraham. Um, one, that's just one of the prayers. And after every, before every meal, blessed are thou, Lord God, King of the universe, who gives us the, uh, the fruit of the vine when you drink wine in the evening or who gives us bread. Uh, and you would pray those three prayers. They are uh, etched into your soul. And then to say, switch from that to the Lord's Prayer three times a day is really significant. It tells you how sacred and how important the Lord's Prayer was for these early Christians. If we move to being your handout, um, showing again the sacredness of the Lord's Prayer, we have... Uh, some uh, communication from uh, Cyril of Alexandria, a very famous theologian, uh, that tells us when the Lord's prayer, when the Lord's prayer, uh, what part he played in the service. And he tells us that the Lord's prayer was uh, part of the Eucharist liturgy. So just like today, we have three Eucharist liturgies uh, meeting today at church, seven thirty-nine and and eleven. Uh, so it's not morning prayer. And uh, this, uh, the Lord's Prayer was part of the Eucharist liturgy, occurring immediately before communion. So, does that look familiar? Uh, in our Book of Common Prayer, uh, right before the prayer of humble access, we have the Lord's Prayer. Uh, that goes back way to the 4th century AD. Thus, the Lord's Prayer could only be uttered by those who had been baptized. And in fact, for those who had gone through the catechism, the Lord's Prayer was first prayed in their first communion service. So you were not supposed to pray the Lord's Prayer until you had been catechized, until you had been baptized. And then the first time uh, that you prayed the Lord's Prayer was in your first communion service. The very first time that you were going to take communion you, you had the privilege of praying the Lord's Prayer. The sacredness of the Lord's Prayer, that is, the fact that only believers could pray it, is enshrined in the history of the Western Church, and I would say also the Eastern Church, with the initial words in Latin, Audemus Dicere. So when we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer, we say, we are bold to pray, Audemus Dicere. And in uh, John Chrysostom, a Greek father, has similar words for the Eastern Church. We dare to pray. Uh, and the idea is that not just anybody could pray that prayer. But we, because we are Christians, because we have been baptized, and we have taken the Eucharist, or are about to take the Eucharist, we have the boldness to pray our Father who art in heaven. So all that to show you that the Lord's Prayer was sacred for the early Christians. It was not something uh, that you held as any other as any other prayer it was the special prayer which leads to a sort of question along the way as I'm studying this some some questions pop in my head and I say well let me try it out on the class and see what they think uh, why do you think 
the Lord's Prayer was viewed as the prayer for the Christian church. Is the is the only one that he said, pray like this, right? Do we have other prayers of Jesus that are recorded in the Gospels? What will be an example? Okay, yeah, John 17, right? What else? Yep. Uh, there's one in Matthew where he says, "I praise you, Father. Uh, you 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 withheld your wisdom from the." wise in the world and gave it to children and of course the, the prayer of dereliction my God my God why have you forsaken me but there's only one prayer where he says this is how you ought to pray so so yes I think that that's why it was the prayer of the Christian church because if you view, if you view Jesus as God incarnate right uh, what you're saying is that this is God teaching me how to pray this is God's liturgy if I need a voice to pray, I can use God's voice to pray. So I think that's uh, probably other reasons, but I would I would say that that's the main reason why it was viewed as the prayer of the Christian church. The question is, is it viewed the same way today? Well, evidently not. If we use it in political uh, events uh, or before a baseball game or something like that, <laughs> evidently it doesn't have the same sacredness that it used to have. Um, any questions before we move on to the broad context of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew? Yes. Um, part of the point on C, do we know, is that also concurrent with the 4th century that those requirements about Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you find that in Augustine, in St. Augustine as well. So, you had this... It really was way back that they were studying. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So you find, for example, with St. Augustine's this uh, catechumens, right? They're gonna uh, they're gonna be baptized and they're gonna do it on, on Easter Day, and they just can't wait to say the Lord's Prayer. They're just holding back for that day where they are baptized, and then they, before they take communion, they for the first time they can say, "Al demos dicere." We're bold to say. So. Um, when did they add for yours is the power and the glory forever? Yeah, that's probably not part of the, of the original text. The, the, the Greek New Testament, uh, the better manuscripts don't have that. But I think it was very early on. Because the Didache has, if you look at the very end of the Didache, you, you see it says, for yours is the power and the glory. It doesn't have the kingdom. But it, but you can see, and that document is from this uh, probably 90 to 100 AD. So very early on, uh, probably... What happened when the church said the prayer, uh, they, they added an amen to it, as it were, and that crept into the manuscripts. And the manuscripts, for example, on which the King James Version is based, which are the inferior manuscripts, actually, mm -hmm. uh, they all included, yours is the kingdom. So, so I wonder, you know, should I say that? Yeah. Well, well, why not, you know? It's, it's, it's saying something biblical. So, uh, so I don't, I don't see a problem with saying that. I think that that addition is from Second Chronicles somewhere. Pro probably from the Old Testament. Yeah. yeah. Uh huh. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So that's just a little bit of history to sort of remind us that uh, we should treat this, the Lord's Prayer in a very sacred way. Um, 
not in a in a mundane mundane way. The the uh, the analogy that came to my mind yesterday is that you don't treat a a pen a Mont Blanc pen the same way you treat a paper mate. <laughs> I don't have a Mont Blanc, but, but uh, I wish I did. But uh, but you know you, you keep it in a special place. Paper mate, uh, you know that's something else. Okay. Number two, the broad context of the Lord's Prayer occurs. Uh, we know that the Lord's Prayer is found in, in two Gospels, right? In Matthew and Luke. I want to concentrate on the Matthean, on the Matthew's uh, version. Uh, so first of all, the broad context of the Lord's Prayer. And clearly, uh, it occurs in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? The Sermon on the Mount uh, is Matthew chapters 5 through 7 in the New Testament. It actually would be good if, if, if we have a copy of the Scriptures to... To look uh, to have that open, Matthew five through seven. If not, don't worry, I can read. Uh, and uh, the Sermon on the Mount is probably a whole bunch of Jesus' teachings and prayers that were uh, not prayers. Well, one prayer, right? The Lord's Prayer. But a bunch of teachings and instructions that he said at the mountain, but also. Probably other teachings that he said at other places are all put together here in Matthew 5 to 7, and they are like, here's, here's what our Messiah taught in the Sermon on the Mount. What is the Sermon on the Mount about? I suggest that it is about two things. Roman numeral 2. The Sermon on the Mount is about how believers can be a light to the nations, 514, and how they can exhibit the righteousness of God, which is a variation of the same thing. Being a light to the nations and exhibiting the righteousness of God. That's what Jesus is teaching his disciples to do. Do you, do we, do you all remember where that text, being a light to the nations? It's not Ronald Reagan, original. Ronald Reagan. <laughs> the city on the hill. Uh, but uh, where does that come from, being a light to the nations? Well, in the New Testament, if you... Oh, okay. If we go back to the old, if we go back to the Old Testament. Uh, uh. Yes, Isaiah forty-nine, right? So the the prophet Isaiah is saying, God is saying to His people through the prophet Isaiah, you know, you are slaves right now in Babylon, but I'm gonna come back. I'm gonna bring you out of exile, and you're going to be a light to the nations. Alas, that Israel was not a light to the nations. They failed in their vocation. Now that vocation falls on the people of God, through, uh, which includes Jews, Jews and Gentiles, in Jesus Christ. So when he says in chapter 5, uh, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, he's saying what was expected of the people of God in the Old Testament is now expected of you, uh, because these promises of the kingdom now have come. They're here with you. So be a light to the nations. And another way of saying that is, exhibit the righteousness of God in your life. So the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount is meant to do that. Um, let's see, let's move to 2B. Um, we have to look at the Lord's Prayer in the context of Jewish acts of piety. So uh, chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Uh, and then, uh, basically, the way I take that is that I have come to give you the authoritative meaning of the law. 
Okay, you have many rabbis who tell you this is what this means. Jesus says, I'm going to give you the authoritative meaning of the law. And it is so authoritative that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, anybody who hears my words and does not obey them is like a house built upon the sand. Anyone who hears my words and obeys them is like a house built upon the rock. The words of Jesus now are at the same level as the Torah, as the Old Testament. And in that context, <clears throat> he's going to speak about acts of piety. Um, so in chapter 6, there are three acts of piety that were current in Judaism. Uh, one of them is almsgiving, 6, 1 through 4. The other one is fasting. And the third one is praying. So, let me read real quick uh, the first act of piety. So, Jesus is saying, basically, here's this act of piety that is practiced in Judaism. Excuse me. Let me teach you the authoritative way to do it, the right way to do it. So, first he begins with almsgiving. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But, you, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So there is the first uh, act of piety, almsgiving, and he's basically saying, don't do it so that other people can see you. Don't do it so that you can get honor and glory from people. Uh, and this was quite common in the ancient world. Uh, for example, in, in a lot of uh, Greek cities, um, if a very rich person of the city gave, say, grain uh, to the people, to provide for the people, a monument would be built for that person. I guess it's not very different from today, is it? Uh, but, but, uh, but, but the person would do it uh, for his honor so that he would be recognized by others. In a smaller way, in uh, Judea and in Galilee and especially in Jerusalem, uh, you could give so that people would recognize you. And Jesus says, uh, that's not how you do it. You do it for your Father in heaven. Uh, to be a light to the nations, to, to, to show your righteousness before God, give when no one sees you. Another uh, act of piety in Judaism was fasting. So if you asked a Jew of that time, what must I do to be a good religious person? They would say, well, uh, you have to give alms to the poor, uh, but you would also have to fast. Uh, and Jesus talks about fasting uh, after the Sermon on the Mount. So you have uh, the Sermon, excuse me, after the Lord's Prayer. You have uh, almsgiving and fasting, and right smack in the middle is the, the Lord's Prayer. Sorry, I keep saying Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, fasting. Here's a quotation from uh, on page two from uh, a book that I think is part of the Catholic Bibles, the Book of Tobit, I think. Uh, but it's certainly a Jewish book that was written between the Old and the New Testament. 
And what the author of Tobit says is a sentiment that is held by the rest of Judaism. It says, prayer with fasting is good. So there you go, prayer and fasting. But better than both is almsgiving with righteousness. So you have prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. That should go together. A little with righteousness is better than wealth with wrongdoing. It is better to give alms than to lay up gold. For almsgiving saves from death and purges away every sin. Now that is a high view uh, of almsgiving. <laughs> if I give, it's going to purge my soul. It's going to clean me up from my sins. And so you can see why Jesus has to address this. The Lord's Prayer then, 5 through 13 of chapter 6, is in the middle of two traditional Jewish acts of piety, forming the center of what a pious follower of Jesus looks like. Okay. Let's go now to the more immediate context of the Lord's Prayer, beginning in, in verse 5. Okay, so he spoke about almsgiving. Now, Master, teach us about prayer. How, how should we pray? Verse 5, and when you pray, by the way, all of these are in the second person plural. We can't tell that, the English language, the you, unless we add, add the southern you all. My seven-year-old is saying it more and more. Uh, but but uh, in Greek, it's, it's, it's second-person plural. So it gives the idea that people are praying in community. Uh, you know, not just my little quiet time. As good as that is. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. So... Uh, here he paints a portrait of a religious person who, uh, in the service of the synagogue, uh, there was communal prayer, but there could also be individual prayer. And apparently these people are standing up uh, when they're doing that so that others can see them. By the way, some people may say, why is Jesus, why is Jesus judging these people? He knows their hearts. If you don't think, if he's not the Lord, then these words are words of uh, judgment uh, in a bad way. But but he's the Lord; he can see through their hearts, so he knows what they're what they're uh, thinking and their motivations. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. That is, their reward is being seen by others. You want a reward? You got it. It was that someone saw you and said, "Look how pious such and such is." Great reward, huh? Uh, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Now, I don't think that we should understand this as meaning that prayer should only be individual. I think Jesus is making a contrast. Uh, rather than being seen by others, when you pray, you do it for God. He says, go into your room. The word for room there is... Uh, Probably a, a little closet uh, in the ancient home. Uh, of course, we can, I was going to say like a garage in an ancient home, but they didn't have garages in the ancient <laughs> uh, But like a little, a tiny closet, a very small place. Uh, and, and the point is that only there your father can see you. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So your prayer, our prayer, uh, Roman numeral three in your handout, page two, is that we pray to meet with God. 
We don't pray to be seen. We pray to meet with God. Now, in our culture, that may not make a lot of sense, right? I mean, who, who wants to be seen by people? Who wants to be seen by people? Pr- you know, praying. Uh, who wants to be seen praying by uh, by people? That doesn't matter too much. You might get rock thrown your way or two, but but in the ancient Jewish context, that was important. In any case, you pray to meet with God. Secondly, be you pray in an attitude of trust in God. Verse 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So Greeks thought that they could tire, and they actually use this word, they could tire out the gods. They could wear them out. Kind of like a child wears, <laughs> wears you out. I want this. I want this. Okay, have it. And the way that you wore out the gods was by repeating this patterns of words. So I'll give you an example. This is from the 6th century AD. Uh, under B1 there. The, you know, God cannot be manipulated by incantations. Here's such. The door Aphrodite. Aphrodite, 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 Aphrodite. Now, notice that in the second line, they're even, they even add the Jewish God. Shabbat Adonai. So they're, they're using all the gods. Right? Uh, what for? I bound you, Artemisian scorpion. Free this house of every reptile. Some of us might want to have that prayer in our <laughs> Free this house of every reptile. Uh, An annoyance at once, at once. St. Focus is here. So that's the kind of prayer that people thought that if they could find just the right words and repeat it in just the right pattern, that it would uh, manipulate the God into answering. Do we do that? Sometimes in Christianity? I think we have a tendency to do that. Uh, uh, To give an example, uh, we pray over our son Philip. He's seven years old. We pray the the high priestly prayer. The Lord bless you and keep you. Uh, And he's gotten now to where he wants to pray it over us. So after we pray for him, he puts his hand on my head, and he prays, and then he says, uh, "Grown up and child of God." He says, "Because you're a grown up for me, but you're a child to God." So, not theology is not too bad, but but I notice that he he says, "Oh, did I get it just right? The prayer? Let me say it again. I'm not sure that I got the words just right. Let me say it again." And I said to him, "God knows what you're what you're saying. The words don't have to be perfect." See, it's not it's not up to the expertise of our words to manipulate God to answer. There is no need to three B two on your handout, for He is our loving Heavenly Father who knows our needs before we even ask. So we do not need to tire God out, which means that we don't have to have long flowing prayers to impress God. In fact, the Lord's Prayer itself is very short. We just pray, and He's the Heavenly Father who knows our needs, even before we ask. Any questions before we move to the first three petitions? And close it out with that. Okay. Now, the actual prayer. 
The first thing I want to point out to you is how Jewish this prayer is. That was the title of the lesson, the Lord's Prayer in its Jewish context. Uh, here's a Jewish prayer, the Kaddish, uh, under Roman numeral 4, that was prayed at the end of the synagogue service. So when you end the synagogue service, after the sermon, here, and, and listen to this prayer and tell me if it does not sound like the Lord's Prayer. Magnified and sanctified be his great name. Hallowed be thy name. In the world which he hath created according to his will. May he establish his kingdom during your life. Your kingdom come. And during your days. And during the life of all the house of Israel. Even speedily and at a near time. And say, yea, amen. Let his great name be blessed forever and to all eternity. This prayer is strikingly similar to the to, to Jesus to the Lord's Prayer, which is the irony of ironies, <laughs> because uh, many Christians think that the Lord's Prayer is what distinguishes Christianity from Judaism. Oh no, the other way around. It shows just how the, how uh, much of debtors we are to the Jewish praying tradition, um, and even during the Nazi regime. Uh, they, they thought that that was a Christian prayer uh, and not a Jewish prayer. It's amazing. Uh, which raises a question that I want you to wrestle with a little bit uh, today and as we go. We're not going to meet next week, but the week after that, we'll come back to the second and final part. But I want you to start wrestling with this question. What is specifically Christian about the Lord's Prayer? I have a suggestion that I, that I give you at the end of, of the lesson, which uh, might not be what you're expecting. But be thinking about that. Just what is Christian about the Lord's Prayer? Okay. The address. Jesus begins by teaching us to say, Our Father in Heaven. Our Father in Heaven. Uh, more than likely, the word that Jesus used, remember, Jesus spoke Aramaic. He also knew Greek. Uh, and of course, Hebrew. Uh, you know, that was not uncommon in that part of the world. Uh, just like today, if you live in Britain, you probably pick up some French and German, you know. Um, not, not like here. What do they call America? The, the graveyard of languages? Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's English. That's it. Uh, but anyways, he probably, he, he spoke Aramaic and he prayed in Aramaic. And the word for that he uses here for our father is Abba. Okay. We know he did that because in another prayer in the Gospel of Mark, the Aramaic is preserved. He says, Abba, Father. What does Abba mean? Well, some scholars in the past used to say that that means Daddy. No, that's not quite right. Uh, it's more something like Dear Father. Dear Father. But here is the kicker. Prior to this prayer of Jesus, there is nowhere, there is no place in all of Judaism where God is addressed directly as Father by someone in prayer. Okay? You have in the Old Testament language about God being our Father. But you never have anyone praying directly to God and saying, My Father. Jesus is the first one to do it. Dear Father. Which tells us of the special relationship He had with God. And that relationship He extends to us. Just as He can say, Dear Father. So now we can say through Him, Dear Father. Why add, page 3, our Father in heaven? Why add in heaven? 
Doesn't that just complicate things? You know, what does that mean that God is in heaven? That if you go, you know, far enough into the cosmos that, that you'll reign, that, that you'll uh, run into God? Remember the Russian cosmonaut who did the orbit and said, I did the orbit and I didn't see God out there. <coughs> um, Yes, uh, I think that's one. I think that's getting at it. I think when it says in heaven, he's talking about God's transcendence, okay? Which is to say that God, there is a divide between creation and God. God is not part of the creation. He's not on this side of creation. He's outside creation, okay? Creation hasn't always existed. It's not eternal. It actually came into into place. What do they say? 4.8 billions is what the some of the uh, astrophysicists say. But anyways, uh, uh, the material world hasn't hasn't always existed. Uh, it's not eternal. Only God is eternal. And, and at a point in time, God created, and so He's transcendent. He's beyond. He's up beyond, above and beyond uh, the heavens and the earth, above and beyond the physical world. So here's how one theologian put it, and it was confusing to me at first. God's space, God's relation to space is not itself spatial. <laughs> God's relations, re, God's relation to space is not itself spatial. Okay? It's not a, it's not a thing that it's not a matter of he's in this corner of the universe and the rest of the you know he's just in another dimension. He's above. He's above us, and that reminds us. That he's in heaven and we're on earth. So and, and I think the psalmist says, let my words be few. Um, you are God. You know better than me. So even as we approach God, he's our father to be sure. Our dear father. But he's in heaven. He's above you. He's your Lord. He's your king. So that means that we have to come with an attitude of submission to him. What are the petitions? Well, we have three petitions here which really are variations of the same, variations of a theme, if you like. Our Father in heaven, here's the first one, hallowed be your name. Second, your kingdom come. Third, your will be done. And all three of those petitions are modified by on earth as it is in heaven. All three of these petitions are saying the same thing in different ways. But let's look at them in uh, separately. Number one, hallow be your name. What does it mean to hallow God's name? It's a recognition that God alone is God and worthy of worship. When we say your name be hallow, we're saying your name be set apart. May your name be recognized as unique. May people recognize and proclaim that oh, you alone are God. Hallowed be your name. When is that going to happen? Well, I have a long quotation there from Ezekiel 36. But we don't have time to get into it. Well, maybe we do. Uh, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Christ, the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So this is interesting. The the uh, the uh, 
Hallowing God's name is something that God does through us, through His people. The Israelites had desecrated God's name before the people. The followers of Jesus have to hallow God's name in the eyes of the people. This is all going to happen when He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is only possible when the Holy Spirit has come upon us. When God gave the Holy Spirit to the church. Only then, by the power of God, can God's name be hallowed. Secondly, the second petition is, Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Well, Jesus, when He began His his preaching in Galilee said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What is the kingdom of God? A few observations there. The kingdom of God refers to God being king, God ruling. The rule of God means the salvation and vindication of His people, but the judgment of His enemies. The teaching of the New Testament is that the kingdom was inaugurated with the incarnation, death, resurre- resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. However, the kingdom will be consummated at the return at the return of Jesus. So when we say, your kingdom come, we're saying, Lord, come back. So that your name would be hallowed. Come back so that your name would be hallowed. This is especially a prayer of someone in pain and someone in, in, a, in a position of uh, pressure and desperation. Lord... I just can't deal with this world anymore. The pain and the injustice. Let your kingdom come. You come and you make things right. That is what we're praying for when we say your kingdom come. Key question here. Is the kingdom of God a Christological category? So that only where Jesus reigns the kingdom is present? Or is the kingdom of God present wherever there is good? An important question. A little bit of a trick trick question. Can the kingdom of God be present where Jesus Christ is not present? Or is the kingdom of God exclusive to the name of Jesus Christ being worshipped and obeyed? Okay, liberal theology from the time of the German theologian Friedrich Schleiermacher says that wherever there is good, there is a kingdom of God. So say, for example, you're in an institution uh, that has not allowed, say, uh, women to be leaders. Uh, now the institution, is, the institution is changing to allow for minorities and, say, just to use an example, uh, women to be leaders. Something good is happening there. That's the kingdom of God. Is that the kingdom of God? Mm, I don't see that in the Bible. <laughs> Sorry. I see in the scriptures that the kingdom of God is exclusively a Christological category. Only where Jesus is can we speak of the kingdom of God, of God reigning. That doesn't mean that those things aren't good things. It is good for changes to happen in our culture. But there's a difference between God's prevenient grace, God helping the world, and the kingdom of God, which is through Jesus Christ. Some of you may disagree with me on this one. If you are, you're on the side of Schleiermacher. Uh, so, uh, something more to think about. What is the kingdom of God? 
Number three, the last petition is, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is just a variation of the previous petition. In heaven, with the angels of God, God's will is always done. Here on earth, because of the freedom that he has given to humans, his will, in a sense, is not always done. There's a paradox here, right? <clears throat> but uh, we pray that his name will be hallowed, that his kingdom will come. And when, when that happens, his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, imagine how beautiful for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. There would be pure love for one another. There would be no hate. There would be justice, forgiveness, and worship of God. In summary, the Lord's Prayer appears in the context of how the disciples of Jesus are to lead pious lives in the areas of almsgiving, fasting, and prayer. In the Lord's Prayer, as in almsgiving and fasting, the distinctive Christian aspect is full trust in God and action directed to God, not to be seen by others. So the common theme in almsgiving, fasting, and prayer is that you do it for God, not to be seen by others. But was not, was, was not this attitude already expected of the saints of the Old Testament? Yes. Jesus' disciples demonstrate that they are, the, that they are genuine and that they fulfill what Israel of all could not. Thus, the disciples of Jesus are the true Israel of God. But what I'm suggesting is that the Lord's Prayer, what is Christian about the Lord's Prayer is that it is Old Testament. But that now you fulfill the Old Testament. Not that it is something separate from the Old Testament. Okay. Questions or thoughts? So we got like, what, two minutes maybe? Yeah. This is helpful. When I lay down with my children at night, I try and paraphrase it um, and put it in their language. Yep. And the first part I skim over because I'm like, it, this is helpful because now I feel like I can put words to that. Yeah. That will be done. Yeah. I get Good. to the part of, you know, when I say something like, God, please forgive us of our, our sins and help us forgive our friends that do things wrong against us. And I feel like, well, it gets through to them, but it really gets through to me. Yeah. You know, it takes the roteness out of it. And yes. It's like really... Anyway, so I appreciate you kind of breaking down the first part of that. No, thank I mean, you, thank I you. I say it, but I don't really know. Yes. How yeah, we're, we're really just asking God to, Lord, come. Yeah. And by the way, there's a missional aspect to that because he wants us to tell people about the Lord so that his kingdom will come. Think, I'm sorry? No, I think that's just a contrast. He's just saying, don't, don't do it to be seen by others. glory, I, I'm just having a hard time understanding your uh, position on the kingdom of God. I mean, are, you, are you saying that like, it's, like the kingdom of God only extends to churches or Christian schools or Christian businesses? I'm, I'm saying the kingdom of God is only present where, where Jesus Christ is proclaimed and where the Holy Spirit is at work. Uh, but I don't believe that the Holy Spirit is at work apart from Jesus Christ. So, for example, if I'm a Buddhist and I'm doing some good things, can I say that is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who is doing this work? You see, that's the danger. If you say, if you say that, um, yeah. So yes, that's common grace. Um, but I mean, isn't understanding of the kingdom that it is sort of advancing? 
It is advancing, but it is advancing through the church, I think. Professing Christ, Christ is there, but I think of the kingdom to come is ultimately when God comes back, and that's what will be included in. But I don't think it's like if you're not at a Christian church, then you're excluded out. Because <coughs> I think that's dangerous to think that like Christ is only working in a physical church. I think it's like oh no 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 that's not what I'm saying. I'm I'm saying that God is working through Jesus Christ. Uh, you know I I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you say that the kingdom of God is present outside of Christology and Christianity, then uh, um, a Muslim or a Buddhist or anybody else has as much can say, you know, yeah, I, I can. The kingdom can come through through a through a mosque. Yeah. Well, good things may happen through. But, but I mean, but sometimes that that does happen. I, I don't know. I'm just you know thinking of you know this uh, one Muslim guy who was. Ah yes, no, that's that's not what I'm. Yeah, so that's that's a good clarification. It's not not about the physical or the location. Yeah. Maybe a clarifying question: Would you ex, would you include uh, Eden in, as the kingdom of God? Well, of course, yes. Right. Yes. So to say that the king was inaugurated with Jesus, maybe that it was what reinaugurated. That, that's there we go. Yeah. We're, we're going back to Eden, but but we're still east of Eden. <laughs> we're still not we're still not quite there, right? Um, but but yes, I, I think I see your point. I think that, though that what what you have to we pick it. Well, how about we pick it up the the following week because yeah, we have to pick up our children. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.